players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Blood, Blood Brainstorm, Orthalingus, and many others. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thurabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 114 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, 2023 Eternal Year in Review. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternal glory to gain access or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Shout out to our new paid members. Since the last episode, we've got Gavin and Marcus coming from YouTube and then Nicholas, Logan, Scott, and Jonathan all coming from Patreon. Bunch of new members who get to hear about Bryant and I eating way too much ham independently, not together over over Christmas. If you want to hear about our ham woes, make sure to check out patreon.com slash eternal glory or YouTube membership. A fun reminder, we are accepting sponsors for the year 2024. So if you're interested, contact us via the eternal glory podcast.com. What we're going to do in this episode is we're just going to go chronologically through set releases and ban updates for for the year of 2023, mostly as they pertain to Legacy, but we'll talk about Vintage, Popper, Modern a little bit too a lot as we go. And we did our best to make a roadmap, uh, make sure to have the, the big hits of each set ready to talk about. We're probably going to miss some fringe sideboard card or some deck that was came and went real quick uh our bad you know it was a long year uh, if we forgot your pet card join patreon.com slash eternal glory and send us a mean message we look forward to hearing it let's jump into this guys remember february 2023 new year full of hope i do i remember winning a lot of games of magic with white plume adventurer things were great great time to be an ancient tomb gamer yep expressive iteration just in decks all decks that could cast it even decks that wouldn't normally play a cantrip were contorting their mana base to do so but that's for later that is that was we were in the heyday of that but a set came out it was phyrexia all will be one and i remember you two having a little bit of an exchange about a card from phyrexia all will be one attracts a grand unifier phil said this is now the reanimation target grizzlebrand sucks and Brian said, Phil, you suck. Grizzlebrandt will never be dethroned. Gentlemen, how does that feel 10 months later? If that was the argument, I am still right. I am still right if that was the argument. Eat e- crap, Phil. No, I was I was really hot on Atraxa when Atraxa released. I thought that was going to be a, a format-changing card. I thought it was going to be good in Reanimator. I thought it was going to be amazing as a, a natural order target. In, in some ways, I was right, but I think I missed the scale of 
how widely this card was going to be played. When we look at Sneak and Show decks now, a lot of times they are just fully off Grizzlebrand, and Atraxa has just replaced that card. And conceptually, I wasn't thinking about this card in Vintage, where it is now a major player in the Oath deck. I remember when we were talking about Atraxa, we mentioned Dredge as a deck that sometimes has a reanimation aspect to it. It's a deck that relies on pitch spells, Force of Will, Force of Negation, Force of Vigor, and Atraxa pitches to all of those. We did say all these words 10 months ago, but we did not talk about doing all of that in Oath. Atraxa being such a unit to put into play off of Show and Tell as a backdoor when Oath of Druids doesn't work. Obviously, Vintage isn't the focus of this podcast or really the focus of anything. It's kind of just that format that exists that we think about a few times a year. But we are coming out of one of those times a year, and I played Atraxa Oath at both Eternal Weekends that I competed in including a top eight in the American one. That deck is really freaking good. And Atraxa is really freaking cool in that deck. She is just the balance of worth cheating into play and is cheatable into play in a variety of ways. Gets value immediately if she dies. Doesn't draw cards, which is important for a card that'll come up about six months from now in, in our timeline. Yeah, Atraxa just rules and she pitches to all the things you want her to pitch to. Uh, you get to put Flash in a deck again because she gets value even if she doesn't stick around. Really versatile animal. Plus, I have hardcast her in Legacy and Vintage plenty of times. The Zenith control decks that or Carpet of Flowers decks or just your vintage deck with Black Lotus. Eventually you just cast this thing. It's also not embarrassing in CEDH either. Apparently stringing together, you know, multiple Atraxas in a turn via Blink Effects, Food Chain, whatever can be pretty damn reasonable. Yep, I neoformed into it more than once in lower power formats. I have a quick note there. There has been a winning streak apparently with Atraxa Grand Unifier via webcam magic recently. It has been made aware that, that person was uh, selecting their initial hands. Uh, take those results with a grain of salt. And I would like to point out, Phil mentioned the sneak and show moving to four Atraxa Zero Gristle brand. There was a change we saw after Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth and a particular two-mana black creature that we'll discuss at length later, but I think it's important to remember magic isn't just thing being true at all points. Like, Atraxa certainly got better as the year went on, I will say. One thing that I expected kind of after seeing Atraxa is I thought we would see maybe three color blue natural order control decks being a thing. And in about June of that year, control just got some major upgrades in multiple different directions that made wanting to do something like that just jumping through too many hoops. We still see a lot of Atraxa, uh, like in the the decks that already want to be playing Natural Order, uh, like the Reclaimer Elves deck, the Fiend Artisan Elves deck. Um, Atraxa is still very annoying there, uh, and I often find myself losing to it. Phil, a card that I don't lose to, and I sometimes see in other combo decks, the Mycosynth Gardens. I thought this card was initially going to be way more playable, and it was another card from Phyrexia All Will Be One, and I kind of feel like it was a dud. Like, you're mostly just seeing it now, like, trying to copy, like, either Lion's Eye Diamonds and Fringe combo decks or uh, Phyrexian Dreadnought and decks that you would play, and I feel like neither of those decks are really thriving at the moment. Yeah, this was, this was a card that I was really excited to test out, and it occasionally does do something broken, but I think if you asked the average Legacy player, like, do you know the text of Mycosynth Gardens? I think the answer is probably no, and you probably don't need to... For your average event. Like, I, I don't think this is a real player in any tier one or tier two deck, really, at all. Yeah, kind of the the big killer on Mike Synth Gardens is that the decks that would want it 
actually don't want it. It's quite good in Modern Amulet, where it's a deck built around owning a particular one-mana artifact and also has the ability to tutor lands like crazy. That's a, a confluence where this card is actually reasonable in some number. I have quite a long pedigree of playing Phyrexian Dreadnought on my channel in various shells and doing quite well. I think it's the winning, winningest card on my channel after Uro, which is hilarious to me. Mycosynth Gardens is not even in the top five ways to enable a Phyrexian Dreadnought in Legacy, and it comes at real cost in your mana base because you can't cast Stifle off of a colorless land. And especially because Urza Saga, you want that to find the Dreadnought a lot of the time, and that's just too many colorless lands in one deck. It just it didn't work out where it was supposed to work out. There was a card from this set, Staff of the Storyteller, that I think had potential to really change legacy. And for some time, it was the backbone of a couple of different control decks. A very good engine in Cephalid Breakfast decks as well. Due to a certain two-mana black creature that got printed later that year, uh, it ended up falling off the earth. And now it's really rare to see Staff of the Storyteller in a competitive deck, and it's even pretty rare to just see it in random leagues, too. Yeah, we had a golden era. This is exactly my speed of card. I actually got to the point where I had cut all my standstills from Sharkstill because Staff of the Storyteller was better at being standstill without any of the deck building requirements, and it triggered off all the same enablers, and there was never a spot where you draw it and you're like, I'm behind, I can't cast this. In fact, the opposite, it's cool, I got a blocker on another card. I was very into Staff of the Storyteller. I won Star City Baltimore with the Cephalid Breakfast Staff of the Storyteller build. It, that was the weekend that Lord of the Rings came out, and Orcish Bowmaster at that point was just sort of a... I saw a couple in the room. I played against it once in the tournament out of a, a red-black painter deck that splashed it, but we weren't really in its world yet. A lot of people just couldn't get them even if they knew about it that weekend. Or, or I sent Staff of the Storyteller out with a bang. The last weekend, it could have been viable. I won the tournament with it. Not much has been seen of it since, but we had a good run. That was a card that I think overperformed expectations, but a card that I think really let everyone down was Mercurial Spell Dancer. When we reviewed the set, Brian, I believe that you said that it was somewhere between Ledger Shredder and Dreadhorde Arcanist. How do you feel about that now? Uh, even then, I was pretty sure it was closer to Ledger Shredder than Dreadhorde, and now I'm not even sure if it's better than Ledger Shredder, uh, actually. And again, the context of being an X1 creature in, in the metagame, there's there's other stuff going on, but Spelldancer is actually really hard to get going. I did had a lot of fun with it. It's an unblockable rogue for morsel theft and noggin whack doubling. Uh, I did a bit of that in the early days. I copied some time walks with it or time warps. I had a lot of fun with that one. It does take a lot to get going and it's just a 2-1 if you're not already cranking with it. It was a card that appeared really sexy. Like it was a great screenshot card if that makes sense because occasionally you get the wild stuff of like copying the hymn to Tarak, copying the fire blast or whatever and you just absolutely savage someone with it but the floor was really really low on on that card it's bad it always just made me really uncomfortable to people being like i'd like to oil up my spell dancer and there's just better ways of saying that 
Oh, no, there's not. Uh, you still are required by the laws of Richard Garfield's internet to say, I'm going to oil her up every time you cast a spell. Speaking of getting oily, how about Venerated Rot Priest? Bryant, I know you and your, your Storm Cabal had some fun with this one when it came out. Turns out this is not an infect creature. This is a storm creature. It is. And I mean, I got tons of views based on it. I even bought four of these storm card that it works with uh, Ground Rift. There we go. I remembered it. And ultimately... It didn't really solve any of the problems that Storm had in any format. I tried it a bunch in Modern. I tried it a couple times in Legacy. And building your deck around a 1-2 creature, surprise, surprise, there's just tons of removal in both formats. The answers in both Modern and Legacy are so much better than the threats between Solitude, Swords, you know, you name it. And I think just building your deck around a single creature right now can be pretty difficult, i.e. Phyrexia Dreadnought. Sorry, Brian and Phil. You're not wrong. The last card that really we remembered worth talking about a little bit was Mirren Safe House. This is an honorary mention, really. I had some fun brewing with Griffin Canyon and Mutavault and going infinite with Mirren Safe House and throwing an infinite, infinite Mirren Safe House at my opponent with Starlight Sanctum. And I added Griffin Canyons and Realms Uncharted to my paper collection because of this card. I just have them just in case it all comes together one day. But this has a lot of cool, exciting text on it. Great screenshot card, like Phil coined that term just now. I think that's a great term. Great screenshot card, not actually solving any problems, though. I actually did record it in Modern as well. It was a way for you to use a Lotus Field with a Blood Moon on the table. So in theory, there's some use there, but not a great card. Skippable. So when we look back at Phyrexia, all will be one. By legacy standards, it was a pretty low impact set. The only card that really has a legacy to its name at this point, come the end of the year, is Attracts a Grand Unifier. And this is what I want to see from a, a set most of the time, is, you know, let's let's have a good marquee card or two that, you know, really has an impact in eternal play. And a few fringe players, like, in retrospect, this set gets a thumbs up from me. Yeah, and honestly, like, thinking about things in terms of legacy impact, I think Phyrexia All Will Be One has a great lasting legacy in eternal formats. These days, we get... A Modern Horizons 2 or a Lord of the Rings that really just kicks the door off the hinges. But this is how it's supposed to be. We had Atraxa, who's a genuine staple, Staff of the Storyteller, who had a great run until meta considerations changed it, and it's still lurking there if things change again. And then we had four other cards here that were fun to talk about and fun to try. That's a great place for a standard release to to land in legacy very happy with that flash forwarding to march wizards of the coast actually gave me a birthday present they banned white plume adventure and expressive iteration i think the funniest part of this is we had an episode where we were like when are they gonna ban these cards already like come on they're just clearly over the line and then a month or two went by we didn't really talk about it much because why talk about the elephant in the room like over and over like you don't need to beat the dead horse so it was a sunday night we were prepping our show notes for a tuesday episode and we were like, actually, the meta is shifting here. We think White Plume Adventure and Expressive Iteration are actually fine. Maybe Wizards was right that they shouldn't ban anything at all. Monday morning, White Plume Adventure, Expressive Iteration ban. And we were just like, wow, I uh, can't use those show notes now. I guess we were wrong. <laughs> My memory is that at no point did we believe these cards were fine. It was just sort of the tippity top tier of the metagame had adjusted to itself, but there was no 
viable tier two. If you weren't doing something that could keep up with Thread One White Plume Adventure, or doing something that could hang with eight looping EIs off of Mystic Sanctuary and Days picking up the Mystic Sanctuary and Merktide region getting big, like if you weren't doing something as good as one of those two things, you were not playing the format competitively. They were definitely correct to ban them. These were the two cards that we had called out in our come on, do something here episode and that is exactly what happened not that we need to be crystal ball wielding wizards to see that those were the two problems uh, but it, it is nice when the actual thing lines up with what we think should happen i'm very glad the two cards are gone for what it's worth just throwing that out there it did unfortunately have the downside of of killing one of uh brian's pet decks though because white plume adventurer untapping some creatures was was something you enjoyed doing yeah i think white plume adventure should be unbanned but only if you also have stasis in your deck i think there should be a special consideration i also think since these divining top should be allowed in painter because manipulating the top of your deck, grindstoning yourself if you don't like your top two card, like that's a cool play pattern. I think there should be special exemptions, asterisks on the ban list for decks that are sweet. All right, so what follows is kind of a period of brewing where the format gets some breathing room because the initiative decks were just so bloody fast that you get some breathing room and the control decks get a little bit worse as their best engine is gone and the Delver decks kind of have to figure out how to adapt. And then in April, we get March of the Machine, which gives us Fairy Mastermind, which was temporarily a really interesting card for the format that really made some, you know, some brainstorm style cards a little bit scarier than they used to be. Yeah, Fairy Mastermind camp coming off the heels just a couple months after Staff of the Storyteller. It was a golden time to be a Jeskai Control wizard because Jeskai Control, historically, the biggest gap in that deck's play pattern was you didn't have a two drop that you wanted to cast. It was like a bunch of one mana removal and cantrips. And then you had Teferi, Narset kind of stuff happening at three. And then we had Staff of the Storyteller and Fairy Mastermind show up all within two months of each other. And then there was real thought of which one is better. What do we build around? What are the payoffs and incentives for each of these things? You play them together. And it was a lot of fun working on those cards in those shells while we had them. I would just like to say, poor Yuta Takahashi. They finally make your card. You work with wizards, you get it printed. And then a month and a half later, it becomes unplayable. Legacy is not the only format, it turns out. And what? I, I know it's a legacy podcast, but I was at a like invitational thing, a 16 player invitational with a bunch of fancy people there. And I saw Nathan Stoyer grinding the arena ladder in standard playing fairy mastermind just a, a month ago. The card is getting played. The card is strong. It's whatever. Like the fact that your card showed up in legacy at all in Paulo's elite spellbinder gets played in some stompy decks sometimes, but uh, Javier Dominguez, he's the that one one night guy that red card that no one knows the name of right it was great and standard and then doesn't exist anymore so the fact that you even showed up clearly over the bar of legacy playable on day one yuda did great with that and he doesn't get to design the card he just had to pick from something in the file is what i understand they give you like a handful of options and you just pick one he picked a great one and it's a fairy i'm sure he's very happy with that situation i was very happy with the play patterns of fairy mastermind like i'm, I'm not the biggest cantrip boy around but i really loved the flexibility of that card as an aggressive two power flyer that also punishes other blue decks and the sub game 
game of whether or not you are willing to activate its four mana ability was really, really skill testing, in my opinion. Agreed. And you get this cool stuff in, it comes up in Legacy, but especially in CEDH, where it blows out Thassa's Oracle wins because the draw is not optional. Can't actually Doomsday into a Fairy Mastermind with four mana up. It, you have to build your pile to account for it somehow. And that's really cool in CEDH. There are so many players and then it's like, I'm not going to pay the one on Rhystic Study. Well, do I want to draw a card if you get a card too? And there's just like a lot of fun tension about it. I mean, we keep coming back to Orcish Bowmaster. It is very clearly the eternal card of the year. But Fairy Mastermind with Orcish Bowmaster in CEDH, where four players suddenly draw a card, three damage starts flying around however you need it to. There's a lot of cool politics and gameplay to this object just sitting in play. The next one is one that saw no play until about the next month or so, uh, and that is Exsanguinator Cavalry. Uh, I'm going to read this one. Uh, it's two colorless and a black for a 2-3 Menace Lifelinker. When it deals combat damage to a player, put a plus one plus one counter on that creature and make a blood token. So recently this has started seeing a lot of play in black ancient tomb decks in Legacy, where it is a threat that scales up that can be played off like a chrome box and ancient tomb on turn one. And all the keywords here are great. Evasion is good. Lifelink is good for an ancient tomb deck. And the blood tokens are not irrelevant as they give you additional selection. Uh, so there's a, another layer. Uh, it's whenever a knight deals combat damage, not whenever this deals combat damage. So if you have two of these, they trigger twice each per combat. And let me tell you, that feels good. I bet. Seems sick. Again, bit player in the format, though. Another bit player was Invasion of Ikoria, which saw a little bit of play in decks with Vampire Hexmage as both a way to tutor the Hexmage itself, if you're able to pay four mana into it, and as an alternate thing that you can rip the counters off of. Yep. It's also just another finale of Devastation in CEDH where you don't get to play more than one copy of the best one. So having one that's close or second best is actually a huge deal uh, for decks like Team or Pirates where that they're really built around having one specific creature into play. And the more tutors you can have for it, the better. So about a month later, we get this like baby follow-up set, March of the Machines Aftermath. I'm going to pause you before you talk about the card. This idea sucked. Don't do that again, Wizards. I didn't like this at all. Like, I'm I'm pretty go with the flow and universes beyond, send it. Secret layers, whatever. <laughs> like, mechanically unique cards that you can only get in Walking Dead packs, I don't care. But this whole rolling it out like it's a release, but it's not even a draftable product, like... This was clearly like the file was too big for one set. And they were like, how do we squeeze some more money out of this somehow? And the, the product was a flop. I hated this whole release aftermath. What did they call them? Epilogue boosters? Yes. Respectfully, F that. From what I was told is that it was supposed to be like the scenes post endgame. You don't need that in Magic the Gathering. But also like if Phyrexians ever come back, then this whole set was like useless. And I don't know. Uh, like it just doesn't really feel like it had any meaning in Magic. But I think we are three enfranchised players who also are not like super deep into the Vorthos of Magic. Like I'm aware that Brian has read the books and stuff. But like I don't think any of us are like set release after set release being like, oh, I need to know what happens to Quintoris Kant here. Like I'm gonna die if i don't figure this out yeah the the people who were like crying and quitting magic when tamio got completed on twitter i was like what the hell is wrong with you <laughs> 
it, it's cool. Like whatever is important to you is important to you. And I'm not actually trying to judge your life, but people who are like in all caps, like this is bullshit. This is who I play magic for. I play magic because it's a card game. I like the story. I think I would like magic less if it didn't have a story. But the idea of you saying that did jog my memory. I think that the aftermath cards were all mechanically or flavorfully. They revealed the end of the story. So the March of the Machine was the battle. And then aftermath was the the post battle scenes and cards, which I guess if you don't want to tell the whole story in one set, okay, releasing a shitty product to, to bridge the gap was not it for me. Mechanically speaking, Vesuvan Drifter came from this set, which is a show and tell main deck or sideboard option. Saw a decent amount of play at first, but it's sort of a high variance card, more high variance than you would expect from a deck playing like brainstorms and ponders and stuff. And I have won so, so many games of Magic where my opponent has put a Vesuvian Drifter in play and had it in play for three or four turns. I just don't think it's what that deck wants to be doing. I think that's actually due to the... So in June, Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth came out. And when you think about Vesuvian Drifter, you get rewarded the most for creatures with activated abilities. And Sneak and Show, the activated ability creature in that deck is Gristlebrand. Well, in the current Legacy era, it was actually best to cut Gristlebrand due to Orcish Bowmasters. So if you're already cutting Gristlebrand, playing Vesuvian Drifter is kind of weak because the next best thing you can reveal would be Emrakul the Aeon's Torn. Revealing Atraxa, while decent, isn't exactly the greatest thing you can do. And then, like, Archon of Cruelty is fine enough, but, like, th those aren't effects that end the game. Like, okay, you take 7, I gain 7 is cool. But, like, you don't get to trigger the Atroxa, look at the top 10, whatever. And that made Vesuvian Drifter not a great backup plan. Yeah, this card, the metagame considerations aren't great for it. And one of my Patreon subs who I work with on their deck all the time, Joe L. If you've run into Joe L in the Moto Qs, usually playing some sort of sneak and show reanimator hybrid. For a while, he was working on a Drifter show uh, where he cut the reanimator package and he had Palantir of Orthonk, Vesuvian Drifter still had the show and tells and had a lot of ways to manipulate the top of the deck like limb duels vault and diabolic vision he was going deep into the tank and i think that deck is solid he puts up a couple trophies a week with it he played it at eternal weekend and uh, like that deck is good but it does take work to make vesuvian drifter function like joe's playing stuff like he has a one-off blightsteel colossus to limb duels vault for which is not a card you would see in any deck that isn't specifically trying to surprise your opponent in combat over something like it, you have to make card choices. Uh, Archon of Cruelty is pretty good because it has an attack trigger. Emrakul is good because it has an attack trigger. Attracts is basically just gain seven, whatever. So yeah, it does take some setup on Vesuvian Drifter. The metagame shift uh, that happens just a month after this really puts the squeeze on Grizzlebrand. All right, so let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. June hits. Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth hits, and it is the most impactful set for Legacy in years. And that is saying something, given how format-changing some of these, like, Modern Horizon-style sets have been. The Legacy card of the year is... -da -da -da, it's, it's Orcish Bowmasters. This card has changed the format forever. Where do we want to start in talking about this boy? <laughs> 
I'd like to start by talking about the set just a little bit. This is a Modern Horizon set. I just want to make that clear to folks who don't understand that or didn't realize that. This is not like Wizards got the Lord of the Rings license and just decided to mess stuff up with insane cards. This is the Modern Horizons release. Modern Horizons 2 came out in June of 2021, and Modern Horizons 1 was two years before that. This was June of 2023. It was printed straight to modern at a modern power level meant to shake up modern. This is a Modern Horizons set, even though it's not named that. And it was designed as such. So this was supposed to shake up Eternal Formats. This was not an accident from a Secret Lair product. This was the intent of the set. So I just wanted to make sure that was clear. I think folks are conflating this with like Walking Dead Secret Lairs when they're talking about Universes Beyond stuff. But this is a Modern Horizon set. It just has the Lord of the Rings skin on it. So I'd like to make two points here. One, when they released Tales in Middle Earth. There was talk from Wizards of the Coast employees on Twitter about how the set was intentionally powered down compared to Modern Horizons 1 and 2. Well, I think you could make that argument. That said, this set was still incredibly impactful, and I loved it. I thought it was perfect. I wasn't a huge fan of the pitch elementals, but I think the cyclers in this set that we'll cover were amazing. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was when they originally announced Universes Beyond, they said that you would have the choice to opt in or opt out. And I think that Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle Earth blew that out of the water and that's no longer going to be a possibility moving forward because they said, oh, well, when you buy the Walking Dead secret layer, eventually we'll print all those cards with different names. They're never reprinting Samwise Gamgee with a different name. Like it's an entire set. That universe, uh, you know, pun intended or whatever, uh, is out the door. Like you're not going to get Troll of Kaza Doom with a different name moving forward. Like that that's no longer going to be the case. Universe Beyond is here. Yeah, and I think I, I guess I don't know the language of the the whole release, but my understanding is they would put into packs in some way cards that only came from secret lairs. I don't think that they were ever intending to reprint the Lord of the Rings complete release cycle into like the list under different names in the future. The Stranger Things cards and the Walking Dead cards, they have been released. You can get them with different names. I'm waiting for Triumph of State Draft, like for fuck's sake, like please, can we play our legacy staples on Magic Online? If Games Workshop won't play ball about printing these, like I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think the impacts that you could get, it was not a limited print run. They did multiple runs. Stores could get as much of this as they wanted. Uh, I don't think we can expect Frodo with a different name. So this was one of the few sets that I actually like got out and went to pre-releases for. Like I went to two pre-releases for this set. Uh, it was mechanically a masterful set. Like the limited environment was, was very fun in addition to like the eternal format um, impact that it had. Like th this was a great set for magic, like slam dunk 10 out of 10 set. Um, I, I loved this one and it draw, drew in a ton of new people. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this set is great. The things that are pushed are pushed in a way that doesn't break anything. It might shift a paradigm a little bit, but Orcish Bowmaster, it's it's annoying. And we did spend the first half of this episode talking about how we had Fairy Mastermind, we had Staff of the Storyteller, we had Mercurial Spell Dancer. A lot of things are just not on the table for consideration because of Orcish Bowmaster. But also Legacy is mega healthy right now. There is a multiple tier one decks in Painter and Initiative that win without drawing cards and they don't care about a raise the alarm and they could just punch past Bowmaster. I actually think Bowmaster mirrors are pretty skill testing and it punishes a lot of the right stuff. It, it takes some learning, but I am not anywhere close to that 
that feeling you get where it's like, God damn, expressive iteration or come on with this Dreadhorde Arcanist. Like the feeling you get when you're at the end of a cycle and something is clearly unhealthy and needs to be done and we're just so tired of this. When's Wizards going to do something? I do not feel that way about Orcish Bowmaster. Agree 100%. So in my opinion, Legacy since June has just consistently kicked serious ass. Uh, and it'll kind of make sense as we continue through this year. But I feel like the second half of this year has been some golden legacy. I feel like the format has been skill intensive. I feel like deck builders and brewers have gotten paid off for breaking tech. I, I feel like games are are highly skill intensive and, and intricate. I, I have loved this year of Magic so much. Uh, agreed. I think Legacy is the best it's been in a very long time. Uh, we have people in the community who point to after Innistrad before Avacyn restored as a golden age of Legacy. That's when we had Snapcaster and Delver, but we didn't have Terminus yet. Uh, that was a good era of Legacy. I feel like we're close right now. In the folks who are like War of the Spark ruined Legacy and it never recovered. I think we're recovered. I think Legacy is awesome and games are good and there's a lot of viable decks and they all interact with each other in interesting ways. Legacy is genuinely sick right now. So Lord of the Rings was more than just Orcish Bowmasters, right? Like we had the cycling set. So you had Lorien Revealed, the only one that wasn't a creature. And my personal conspiracy theory on this is that they looked at it and said, we can't give Living End in Modern a blue cycling creature that allows them to play around Blood Moon. So we'll turn it into a spell. That's my personal conspiracy theory. You don't have to agree with me, but Lorien Revealed ended up being the best one because of it. And a, you know, a five mana draw three that also like lets control decks get their basic to play around blood moon brian you must have been licking your lips when you saw this card like it's just so good yeah this one i'm not gonna lie it was a slow burn for me obviously there were a lot of really splashy cards in the format and i think i even opened alluring revealed in my pre-release sealed pool and just put it in my sideboard I, I don't think i was playing blue or i think i would have figured it out but i wasn't like holy smokes this does everything we need but it has really it was figured out quickly and it's just fundamentally changed what decks can do. Obviously, it's in all sorts of legacy decks right now, and it is a five drop for a card we're going to talk about a little later up the Beanstalk. Really, I, I'm i looking at it in Vintage, where it really changed things. The Luris control decks play like nine colorless lands in their two and three color control decks that also intend to cast Luris at some point while supporting Force of Will with their blue count. And that's Lorien Revealed, baby. It's just doing it. So one of the biggest things that, that I still am getting used to as a player is like, if I'm playing like a Blood Moon deck, my opponent goes like, Wasteland passed. I'm like, all right, I got him. GG. Like, Ancient Tomb, Spirit Guide, Blood Moon, Tap, Cycle, Basic Island. Fuck you. The ability to cantrip off colorless lands like Urza's Saga and Wasteland is such a beautiful thing to add to legacy gameplay and i love it yeah and it changes when you can shuffle your deck on purpose i still like even after six months of lore and reveal being legal i'll be recording a video and my opponent will tap their last mana in my end step to brainstorm and i'm like oh they're probably a combo deck if they're willing to make this exchange and then they cycle lore and revealed on their upkeep and i'm like oh nope this could still be a control deck. They were just using their mana efficiently. And it's just cool. It, it affects little things like that. And then you get this like cycle Lorien revealed on turn four 
to find Mystic Sanctuary that picks up the Lorien revealed for you to then cast on turn five. I love all that stuff. I think it's very cool. All right. So I'm glad we're talking about this because Orcish Bowmasters changed how we're supposed to brainstorm and it's never going to be the same ever again because you are now rewarded for main phase brainstorms more than you ever have been before. There used to be these articles and theories going around like the best brainstorm is the one you never cast <laughs> and stuff like that. All of that I've always, my entire legacy career I thought was a little bit pompous, but we're in an era where like just cast the good cards. And because if you don't, you're going to get punished by Orcish Bowmasters. And I think the fact that we have a playable card in the format that does punish Brainstorm is a terrific thing. Yes. And there's Orcish Bowmaster plus just overall card quality in Vintage. Turn one, play your land, cast Brainstorm is great because you have Moxen, you have like all these dope things you can do for zero or one mana, and you can unlock powerful things. Black Lotus is in your deck somewhere. What if you find it and just don't spend four mana on turn one? And Legacy is pretty close to that right now too, where just send it on that brainstorm a lot more often than people are actually doing. I, I think one thing that's interesting is like Lorien Revealed came in the same set with Orcish Bowmasters, and the draw of Lorien Revealed is still strong enough to play because in that early game, you can use it as a cantrip that does not trigger Bowmasters. And in the late game, you know, after you've removed the Bowmasters and the coast is clear, you do just get to use it as a draw three. Uh, we did see another really powerful draw engine in this set, um, the One Ring, which has seen play in control decks as their draw engine and protection. It's seen play in dedicated, like, Mystic Forge-style combo deck lists. This is a card that is still a player in Legacy, but it really had a heyday uh, maybe in like June and July as a card to beat in Legacy. How am I supposed to be able to afford to play the One Ring? It's literally a $2 million card, Phil. Uh, ju just one of them. You can get fake One Rings quite plentifully. Uh, it was actually just reprinted in the, the holiday release of whatever, <laughs> whatever that thing's called. But yeah, One Ring was really exciting. It's still kind of cool. I think it's largely replaced Jace the Mind Sculptor and anything like that in any deck that would have ever wanted something like that. I was actually trying to figure out if five color would be better with one ring than up the beanstalk, but I couldn't get enough reps in before Eternal Weekend to actually figure that out. And does being a Yorian deck or not a Yorian deck change that calculation? One ring also had a lot of heat on it coming out of the set because Delighted Halfling also in this set, which makes the one ring uncounterable. People were curving turn two to fairy into turn three, one rings, and then firing arrows around. And uh, that was an exciting time. And the one ring gets a lot of heat as well. But this is a four mana object that gets better if you play more and more turns after it's in play. If we're talking about eternal formats, even modern and especially legacy and vintage, four mana is a lot. Four mana is game ending mana in these formats. And the fact that your four drop comes into play and then replaces itself and then slowly draws more cards over multiple turns. I think that play pattern is great. So I'd like to go back to the $2 million joke thing. This was a space that Magic the Gathering moved into with Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle Earth. Serialized cards, we had done it for a couple of sets moving forward, but this was really the first set where they put a price tag on being able to buy a pack where you could open up a $2 million card. And then they had the 900 uh, soul rings, the 1100, I, I can't remember, it's 579, is that it? No one knows. There were a lot of them. Yeah, I don't know. 
Okay. It's like based on like the humans, the elves and whatever from the Lord of the Rings series. The fact that they did this put a ton of money into the backs and they got tons of people to open them. And I think that's a space that magic is going to remember and do again moving forward because like you better believe when they move to uh, Final Fantasy or whatever, the fact that they're going to have Bahamut or whatever, like there's going to be more chase cards like that in there that are one of ones. And, you know, there's more space for wizards to do things like sign cards or whatever that they do in sports. Uh, I'll get off my high horse here, but I do think that it was really interesting that Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth was like the first step in that direction. Yep, a lot of collectability stuff unlocked there for the future of Magic. Uh, let's talk about Troll of Kazadum, uh, which we had originally grouped with Lorien Revealed as just the one mana cyclers, but this is its own whole thing. Because Troll of Kazadum is not just everything that we just said about Lorien Revealed. It's also an incentive to reanimate in your fair deck, which is something that Death Shadow was already kind of doing, historically going back to PT25, where Josh Hutter Layton showed up with reanimate Death Shadow at the Pro Tour, and it was pretty sick. And we just had Grief waiting around. It was in reanimate decks, but Having Troll plus Grief gave you a critical mass of things worth reanimating in your fair blue deck. That's just one of the ways you can use Troll. I think the release of Troll led to a real resurgence of Black being really strong in Legacy. Uh, and, and it's not just all like Bowmaster as well. Like the Trolls fit into multiple different archetypes. Like you can play them in Tempo, you can play them in, in Stompy, and it's powerful in either way. And we've seen more grief than ever this year. And that means more anti-grief tech. Like people like Bryant are out there uh, main decking Veil of Summers in many portions of the metagame throughout this year because of that. So the final major, major player card from this set is Fourth Aerlingas, which is a major player in the Boros Initiative decks as it is a game-ending fireball that also imprints for two colors under Chrome Box, while also being one of the best control finishers of all time, because you can win the game with it on turn three by playing it for X is one and holding the Monarch for the rest of the game, or you can just cast it for like X is ten at the end of the game and kill your opponent in one or two turns. It is such an incredible high-power card, and the tokens have trample too, because fuck you! Yeah, that card's super messed up, and that was tucked in the Lord of the Rings Commander release that was not in the main set. It's not legal in Modern. It's just legal in Legacy and Vintage. Yeah, I didn't even know that card existed. The tournament that I won in Baltimore the weekend that Lord of the Rings came out, someone made top eight of that event with 4x 4th Air Legacy and Boros Initiative, and boy, I'm glad I didn't play against that person because I would not have known what happened to me. Now, there are some other bit players in this set for the sake of time that we're not going to talk about. Sauron's Ransom has seen a lot of play in blue-black shells as sort of a mini, like, gifts ungiven style source of card advantage. Palantir of Orthanc has seen assorted play in sneak-and-show decks, in some stompy decks, uh, occasionally in fair decks, but ultimately, Orcish Bowmasters is a thing. Uh, as a side note, it was also bugged on Magic Online for quite some time so that the interaction with things like Narset didn't work correctly. And then... Decks like Death and Taxes uh, and Esper Vile have occasionally played uh, Samwise as a way to recur Fetchlands, Wastelands, and sometimes save other things from the graveyard. Yep. And like Phil said, there's a bunch of bit players like that. Uh, we just don't have time to talk about all of them. This was a highly impactful set 
deep into the bench. It wasn't just two or three marquee cards. It was a lot of marquee cards and a lot of role players as well. In August, we actually had Popper, I mean, I'm sorry, Commander Masters as a uh, set that was printed. Most notably, there was a bunch of downshifts in Popper. We had Dread Return, Watleth Giant, but most notably, Monastery Swiftspear, which is now banned. Yep, just wanted to hit that real quick because it is an eternal format. Uh, also in August, uh, Bryant, uh, give us your 35 seconds or less run with Mind's Desire for the time that you had it. I mean, we still have it, but who cares? Oh my god, they unbanned Mind's Desire. We need to cut Ad Nauseam. You can play triple Echo Veons with your Galvanic Relays. Oh my god, this is so good. Wait, let me read Beseech the Mirror again. Uh, yep, you couldn't read Beseech the Mirror for a month but that was an exciting month to be playing Mind's Desire again. For years, the Storm community have been saying Mind's Desire isn't even that busted. We don't even know if we'd play it if we had it. Turns out you did play it. It was pretty good, but it was not better than another engine that's coming up. But in the meantime, we had some Unfinity and Commander cards added to MTGO. These were not new cards that were printed this year, but in a lot of ways, until they hit MTGO, the hive mind can't start iterating on them. Content creators can't start putting them out there for people to see. Uh, we got Mind Goblin, Sticker Goblin, whatever we're calling it, was probably the biggest one to hit MTGO, uh, spawned Divergent, Goblin, and Stompy, and Combo archetypes. Many of these decks, a foot in each camp of Goblin, Stompy, and Combo, uh, really terrifying to play against. Uh, Creative Technique was another one we got, which is its own standalone archetype. I think this deck is surprisingly good, surprisingly resilient. I I played against it at Eternal Weekend, and it was a really tough match that if I didn't have dedicated sideboard, I would have lost. Embiggen is a pump spell for basically Infect and nobody else, but I have played Embiggen Infect, and it was pretty good. The saddest boy, Comet Stellar Pup. A lot of hype. I had a lot of people telling me, whispering in my ear over the months that this was legal but not on MTGO, that Comet secretly busted. They printed another red-white control finisher in fourth Aerolingus a month before we got this on MTGO or a couple months. And by the time Comet could be really explored and iterated on, the ship had already sailed. I just don't think that this card is actually good or it, it it's fine, but it's not better than fourth Aerolingus for your money. It does not have the same degree of consistency. Like Comet will occasionally kill an opponent from 20, just non-ironically. That is a thing that it can do. I did that this week in a deck that I, I recorded with. But so does fourth Erlings. Yeah. And that one draws cards and is good both in the early game and the late game. Similarly, we received Paradise Lost, which is essentially a green super restock or green past in flames however you decide to look at it and a lot of ad nauseum tendrils players are really excited about the prospects of this card because it'll allow them to be bug however just like with mind's desire it was quickly overshadowed within weeks due to the release of wilds of aldrain yep uh let's get quick on this uh we Officially have about nine minutes left of this pod, but I'm sure we're going to go over today because Ryan Cook, Storm Wizard Extraordinaire, just got Beseech the Mirror. As fast as you can get all your thoughts out of your head, tell us about Beseech the Mirror, because I also have. 
a card that was printed just for me in this set I need to talk about. <laughs> of course. So Beseech the Mirror just redefined Legacy Storm combo. You were able to play a super efficient Past in Flames, uh, Yogmoth's Will hybrid uh, with Guy's Will. And then I think what really solved it was that Screenwriter NY figured out that Song of Creation needed to be paired with it. So that way you have a way of beating Graveyard Hate. And that sort of cracked Beseech wide open. That was the you know nail in the coffin for Mind's Desire and Paradise Lost, Past in Flames, Ad Nauseam. I don't think we're ever going back because I don't see Beseech the Mirror, much like Orcish Bowmasters, ever leaving. Those cards are here. And uh, wow, what a time to be alive. Very much needed improvement for combo. And it also becomes a pillar in the mono black helm decks. Uh, I don't think those decks ended up doing quite as well as people expected they would. A lot of people were like, it finds Leyline and Helm. It lets you play fewer copies of things like Karn that are just bad. And the deck's still around, but I think the mono-black deck has gone in a more aggressive uh, direction. Yeah, a lot of cool ways to use Beseech. Uh, there's also decks that seem like they would play Beseech, but don't like Black Saga Storm. And uh, it, it's just like a really interesting game piece to solve and great for Storm. Likewise, uh, up the Beanstalk, hello, uh, for control uh, we talked about staff of the storyteller fairy mastermind those got pushed out by orcish bowmaster but then up the beanstalk smush a bowmaster with that thing uh all the cards we wanted to play anyway cost five and we resurrected some cards that wizards of the coast told us would be legacy playables at the time but we didn't believe them like leyline binding uh up the beanstalk just a core control draw engine the fact that anything could push the one ring and planeswalkers off the pedestal as how control decks choose to draw cards is really impressive and up the beanstalk so good it's actually banned in modern already and it changes what legacy is really about it has vintage archetypes built around it as well in the same breath oh this set was a heater quietly questing druid redefined how delver draws cards it's a threat and a draw engine in one it won eternal weekend in the hands of juju bean this card is just an insane heater uh, i don't play smaller formats like i don't know if this is getting played in standard or pioneer it's definitely getting played in legacy i know andrea mangucci had a rug murktide build in modern that he was playing for a while that looked really powerful with questing druid uh, this is just a great card that puts cards in your hand without drawing them which matters for bowmaster it's a threat it's card advantage delver was experimenting with ren's resolve type effects anyway and this is just that plus an, an efficient tempo creature a lot came out of Wilds of Aldrain. On this podcast, we've said multiple times that Delver breaks once it gains efficient card advantage. Questing Druid is the perfect kind, because like Brian said, Reckless Impulse just wasn't quite good enough, but give them the free body so that way it takes up a creature slot. That's exactly what they wanted. And I don't think it's broken either. Like, this is a one-shot conditional. This is not draw two. In the best case, it's kind of draw three, because you get the body as well, and then two spells to cast. But sometimes you just hit two lands, you play one of them, you burn off the other card. Sometimes you get Force of Will that you can't use on your turn. It's just a nice conditional squeeze that fits that shell perfectly. No one else really wants it. And even Delber, uh, Grixis is as popular as Rug is. And uh, it, you really just, your mileage may vary. It is not obviously the best thing to be doing, but it is obviously a good thing to do. The set also had a couple other bit players. Agatha Souls... Agatha's Soul Cauldron has seen a little bit of legacy play in both combo and fair shells, uh, sometimes alongside things like Walking Ballista or Hardened Scales, and Talion the Kindly Lord has seen a decent amount of CEDH play. 
um another great set for eternal formats yeah real real uh playable high benchmark stuff that has changed archetypes without breaking the format and that's what i want uh october we got doctor who i don't believe there's a single good doctor who card unique doctor who card uh we wouldn't know because they're not on magic online and there were a lot of good reprints though carpet of flowers exists in surge foil now uh previously you could only get foil carpet from a secret lair and for people who care about that that's cool for people who just care about cards being cheaper that's cool the whole horizon canopy horizon land cycle got reprinted they're dirt cheap now if you want those go grab them uh, if you haven't looked at the bench of Doctor Who reprints, please do, because there is a surprising number of playables, uh, Ponder, Swords of Plowshares, Preordain, etc. They're all out there, and they are basically free right now. So then in November, we got another batch of Lord of the Rings cards in sort of a holiday bundle type thing. Uh, this is where we got Legolas's Quick Reflexes, which is not as good as I thought it was going to be, but it's kind of the best at doing what it does. If you are one of the three Infect players out in the world, uh, you love this card. And if you are a Merit Lodge gamer and you like 2020s, this is probably up your alley too. Um, but I have seen this card underperform relative to what I thought it would do. Yeah, there's no actual buff on it. It's just hexproof. And the tap deal damage to a creature thing is actually kind of hard to make work in any sort of interesting way. I had an Elves player... Uh, with a Dryad Arbor in play, and they tapped the Dryad Arbor to put reflexes on the Dryad Arbor, then floated mana to ping a 1-1. I mean, I guess that was cool. That's the coolest I've seen this card be. It, it's pretty low impact overall. From the combo perspective, I have seen a green-white depths player put Collector Oof into play and then just hold open quick reflexes the entire game. It didn't go well for them, but I was like, that is obviously annoying here and something that you should consider. That is a game plan, and... We've got a couple minutes left here. I think we're going to get this done. Let's talk about Lost Caverns of Ixalan. The biggest one, Phil. Yeah, Phil, I'm going to give this to you because this is your shit and I hate it so much. All right. Um, Broadside Bombardiers is one of the best goblins just ever printed, uh, which is saying something because we also talked about Namesticker Goblin in this episode. And Broadside is changing the way that a lot of these red stompy decks are being built. And if you thought Namesticker Goblin was good, I want you to imagine Namesticker Goblin that also is thrown at your opponent's face for 5 damage after it does its thing. Uh, it is very scary. Broadside itself having both haste and menace means that it gets in there and does its thing the turn it comes down. You often don't have a lot of time to respond to it, and it's difficult to block. Also, the bow stability can be used before blockers. So you can just throw a little goblin token at one of your opponent's two blockers, and now they don't get to block anymore. And I'm not done! It also gives you a way to kill a Merktide Regent with red damage. And that's something that you usually can't do in these red decks, because a lot of times you max out at four damage off Fury. Not anymore. If you fling that Fury, you're going to kill a Merktide Regent. Or just fling it at your opponent's face and kill their opponent. Yeah, my experience playing against this card as a fair blue wizard with scruples is that it is uncounterable, unkillable, unblockable, and it'll deal 20 to you in one attack. That is that is how I feel when I see this card. Uh, there's so many game states on my recorded channel where I'm like, okay, I'm at nine, they're top decking, 
I've got a removal spell. I got a blocker. Like, I think I'm good here. And then I just get bombardiered and I'm dead. It just happens so fast. And you really got to. It's one of those things where everyone's got to play until they got punched in the face. This requires a specific set of answers or a specific buffer of life total or uh, like you can't just hold supreme verdict and think you're safe against goblins anymore you will die before you get get to cast it so another card that got powered up was battle cry goblin this was printed in Aven- adventures in the forgotten realms uh, which i think was like two years ago at this point but now it, it is just having a huge resurgence due to broadside and sticker goblin and these cards are good have a plan. Yep, agreed. Uh, next card from Lost Caverns is Trumpeting Carnosaur, which doesn't have a lot of homes, but the home that it does have is very important. It is as if somebody looked at the Creative Technique combo deck and said, how do we give this deck everything they want to get slightly better? And Trumpeting Carnosaur, it discovers for five, which is like Cascade, but slightly different, and which is the number that this deck wanted to discover and Cascade for. And it also has the ability to functionally channel it's not keyworded as channel but you pay some mana you could discard a deal three to a creature one of the best cards against that deck is stuff like lavinia i was at eternal weekend Prague playing against this deck and i had a lavinia in play with force of will backup i felt like i could never lose and then they channeled this carnosaur that i had never seen that was like the week the set came out or something i was like what the hell is this oh no i'm in trouble niche player but it is very good in the deck that it's good in So this set also saw the release of Stalactite Stalker, which is a card that I expect that we'll see more of in Legacy. Menace is really good. Threats that get bigger over time are really good. Pitches to Grief can technically be a removal spell later in the game. Is a rogue. Is a rogue. Rogue. Is a goblin. Gonna whack that noggin. Yeah, that that card is reasonable. And I think the last card we're going to talk about is Molten Collapse. It's just... It gives Grixis a way to kill Chalice of the Void super reliably in a playable game one card. Molten Collapse just functionally replacing Dreadbore, which is a card that I have registered in decks from time to time. Not a legacy staple, but playable in formats. And Molten Collapse is just Dreadbore plus also a destroy a one drop. And if you have a fetch lane, you get them both. Versatile interaction in a color spread that legacy players like to play anyway. It's worth noting for years we've been preaching how great Carpet of Flowers is against Delver as like the card that helps you actually beat the Delver deck. They printed a card for Delver to be Carpet of Flowers. So keep that in your mind. Carpet of Flowers is no longer the perfect answer. You'll you'll need a, a Veil of Summer to protect it. All right. As it's the end of the year here, let's wrap this up, put a bow on it, make it all sound pretty. Just in a sentence or two, what are your thoughts on Legacy this year going into 2024? We're in a golden era. People love to talk about pre-War of the Spark, you know, pre-Innistrad. We're in that right now. Enjoy it while you can, because you never know what's coming down the pipeline. Yep, I agree. Legacy's awesome right now. My biggest and really only gripe at this time is Wizards of the Coast failing to deliver the product that they made to all of their player base. I think, what was it, three, four decks in the top eight of Eternal Week in America had cards that don't exist on Magic Online. People who are excited about Legacy want to go try the decks that they see winning. Guess what? You can't get wrecked. I have turned down, I think, five donation decks that all contain Triumph of St. Catherine in the last three weeks, and it just sucks to tell people that. Sucks to not be able to do this. That is the deck I would have been testing for my own interests if I had access to the cards. No, No solution on the horizon to that. 
Doctor Who also not on the platform, which matters less luckily, but if there was a card, we'd want it. There's still some Commander stuff from years old, like Keen Duelist, just kind of a weird inside-out Dark Confidant for show-and-tell decks. You know, just stuff like that, just kicking around, that I would play if I could, but I can't. The format is awesome. The format is healthy. I wish Wizards would get their shiznit together and make whatever deals they need to make to give us these cards. I, I think the highest praise I have of this year is like, right now, I am very clearly sick. I have a, a sinus infection. I'm struggling as I record this podcast episode. All I want to do is get better so I can sit down and play like 15 matches of Legacy in a day. The format is just that good, whether you're playing with Jank or whether you're playing with the tier one stuff. 